all profit is value extraction. And that means that all profit is theft from you. Corporate America is on welfare, and, and they you got to get them off welfare. Hi, welcome to Cars and Comrades, the podcast for leftist politics and car stuff. My name is Bryant. With me today is Zach. Hello. Brandon. Hi. And Connor. Hi. And today we're going to do, this might end up being a two-parter, but we're going to do uh, an episode about nuclear-powered vehicles, mostly during the Cold War. So it's a little bit of a tenuous connection to leftist politics. Uh, but I think knowing the history of the Cold War, the the weird projects that the U.S. and the USSR got up to as far as like military industrial complex type stuff, I think it's kind of interesting. And it does connect to cars a little bit, but mostly it's, you know, military vehicles. Uh, but before we get into all of that, uh, let's just talk about what we've been working on this week on our different cars. I guess since last time we talked, uh, I have done almost nothing with my cars. Um, I am getting ready to get my uh, MR2 back on the road. So I took the battery out and put it on a charger. Uh, so that is all charged up and ready to go. Then I got to, you know, like reinflate the tires, make sure there's no flat spots on them. Uh, I don't know, prime the engine, turn it over a couple times, get it started. Then I can put it in my driveway and uh, tackle all the electrical problems that it has. But I did accomplish something. I uh, put hydraulic disc brakes on my mountain bike, which if you don't have hydraulic disc brakes on your mountain bike, I highly suggest... Uh, I almost flew my handlebars with the, the stopping power. So, uh, and they're, they're pretty easy to modulate once you get the hang of it. But um, I don't think I'm going back to the mechanical brakes anytime soon. So that's about all I've done. Um, yeah, uh, it's, it's, I mean, my, my bike came up, came set up for disc brakes. Like it has all the mounting locations for it. So it was pretty easy. I just bought a Chinese uh, kit from Amazon for like sixty bucks, um, and then I then I had to get the the actual rotors also. Uh, that was a separate thing. Um, if you are looking at Chinese uh, made kits, make sure that it has the um, the left and the right and the front and the back the way that you want it. Because I didn't know this, but like apparently in other countries. Uh, it's opposite of what American mountain bikes are set up as. Um, so that's like most of them. You have to kind of look for the the left for the front. Um, that's that's the American way of doing things, apparently. Um, or if you just, you know, want to learn to do it differently, just go with the, uh, the non-American version. Um, and, I mean, it's pretty easy. It all just bolts on with some hex bolts and some... Uh, what do you call it? Uh, Allen Allen wrenches and whatnot. Yeah, um, I I did. Uh, I I read the reviews on Amazon, and one guy had the um, the little plug where you fill the hydraulic fluid in there, 
uh, it like the screw backed out on him, and like all the elect- the the hydraulic fluid bled out, and he lost his brakes going downhill. So uh, I put some some JB weld o- over that uh, screw. So hopefully it's not gonna happen to me. That seems we'll more see. of a Loctite situation, bud. I did well. I mean, it's it's a flush. It's screwed in flush. So I I put a little bit of Loctite on it, the red stuff, and then uh, dabbed some JB weld over it just to. Also, just as like a visual thing, like if I see a little crack around that, I know that it's you know coming loose. But I think it should be fine. I, I guess I could have taken a center punch and and punched it into the edge of the threads, but I don't know if I have to maintain it later. I don't want to have to deal with that. But um, fair enough. Uh, Connor, I, I know you've been working on your uh, your was it three fifty or three seventy Z? I forget which you have. Uh, it's a 350. I'm, uh, you know, I'd love to have a 370 someday, but uh, you know, they're they're a little more expensive, a bit quicker, but uh, you know, I'm still at that 350Z levels. <laughs> um, so yeah, actually, yesterday was the uh, was finally the big day where I uh, brought it to the shop uh, where it is having the uh, engine taken out and rebuilt and everything else. Uh, so, you know, trans swap, all new internals, completely rebuilt heads, new cams, new radiator, all that shit. Um, so, going to be without uh, that car for good, uh, a solid two months at least, um, which is very, uh, which is a weird feeling. Because, <laughs> like, I just don't have a car at the moment, uh, except for, uh, if, at some point I am going to bring my Camaro uh, from my dad's house and bring it to my apartment but uh it's snowy here and so that's that's tough to do so uh and who knows if it'll start consistently when it's that cold it's not going to be a super reliable daily let's just say so um functionally i'm without my normal car um but it should come back pretty pretty well built up and ready for the track and uh, i should be able to beat the shit out of it so i'm excited but i'm anxious and uh uh, on the bright side, though, the um, uh, the literal mountain of car parts that was in the living room is uh, now at the shop. So, <laughs> Dude, when I finally got a workshop space, I gained two extra rooms in my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's you know it was started it was stacking up, and you're just like, there's nowhere else for it to go. In the middle of the living room, that's that's where it is. <laughs> so that's all gone. Um, yeah, I'm excited. It's gonna be it's gonna be a pretty, a pretty cool build, um, I think, um, and yeah, so I should be able to have some fun with that. But yesterday was the big day, so uh, now I'm gonna be shifting to little, you know, odds and ends on the Camaro when I have time. Yeah, I uh, Brandon, I've got a, a mountain of uh, Subaru parts in my crawl space right now, um, so I can identify. Um, but oh, Connor, my basement I, and attic are still the, full of car and motorcycle parts, but also, <laughs> I, I, like, and I still have to get six ju- uh, vans out of the junkyard um, <laughs> that I, like, purchased okay. and paid for I, but haven't removed yet. Like, I bow to your superior car hoarding. <laughs> I Yeah, dude, I have enough stuff to build, like, a high-performance, large displacement shovelhead motor in my attic. Like, I just don't do anything with it. <laughs> yeah. And I've got enough parts to 
build a very low performance uh, Vespa moped engine in my crawl space. But uh, um, <laughs> um, so Connor, what was the I, I what was your power goal with the the rebuild and and tell me about the transmission swap that you're doing. Um, so the power goals are pretty modest. Um, so I'm spending a whole lot of money, um, and, and I'm expecting to get probably over 300, uh, wheel horsepower, um, realistically in the range of like maybe 310 to 320. If I'm really super lucky, uh, I might be in that 340 wheel horsepower range. Um, but again, none of those numbers are particularly impressive or especially given like what all is getting done to this car. Um, honestly, the VQ 35 was kind of just a really well-designed engine from the beginning minus some, you know, some, a, sh a few shortcomings, but, uh, yeah, for power NA, they were just, they were already pretty good from the factory. So there's only so much you can do. Um, but the whole point being I'm, I'm building it for, you know, being able to handle a lot of abuse. So decent power, um, and, uh, you know, it, it should hopefully hold up pretty well. And then the trans swap is real simple. It's just switching to a CD009, which is what came in some of the rev up models of the 05 350Z, and they came in all of the 06s. Uh, and it was just, it was a better design trans. Um, it had better synchros in it, which is really what was having a problem on mine. Um, it's been like two or three years of like, it's tough to get into gear. Um, and that obviously slows you down and makes me drive like shit. So um, it'll be nice to have something that's going to shift smoother. Um, and also uh, the CD009 is like notorious for handling a thousand horsepower stock. Um, and like people are scooping those up to put behind LS motors and, you know, crazy crazy builds so uh i scooped one up for myself they're still priced pretty reasonably and uh it's going into my car so that should uh help some of the uh, uh transmission um inconveniences i i had i don't really know like those transmissions at all is that like a four speed five speed like I, I, how's that set up so it is it is a six speed oh, okay Ooh, fancy hmm yeah, the gearing could honestly the gearing leaves a little bit to be desired. Um I will admit, like honestly, I think the cars could be capable of a bit more if sixth gear was a little bit taller. Um it would probably be even a little bit better on gas. Um cuz like your your top speed in the 350Z is limited by actual redline rather than like a speed governor. So, like you're at you're pretty much at redline when you're doing like 160 or so um so you know it, i wish it was a little bit taller um of a gear that could just like hold out a little bit longer and get how tall know, is that gear i don't know off the top of my head um it's um which i might be getting it backwards too um taller is where you have a greater range right which would I think actually mean a smaller gear. I don't know. I'm probably mixing it up, but um, it, it, taller I, I wish it, like, yeah. yes. Then that's the, that. Then I wish it was taller. Yeah. Um, be, because like going like 70 and 80, you're cruising at like 3000 RPM, which isn't terrible, but like my Camaro 
in sixth gear, you're going 70, you're at 2000 RPM. Um, and that's, that's kind of an improvement in my, in my, in my mind anyway. So it's not super great gear ratios. Um, but the trans itself is super fucking strong. Yeah. I don't know why there's a lot of manufacturers put like really close ratio, low geared six speed transmissions, like especially in sports cars. Like I think the new, uh, what is it? ND Miata has a six speed manual and only gear six is an overdrive. Like, Fifth gear is one to one, which on like a normal transmission is usually third gear. Yeah, and they just yeah. have it geared way way low, and like then like on my MR2, if I'm driving that at let's say seventy miles an hour in fifth gear, I'm at like four thousand something RPM. You know, it's uh, it it doesn't really make sense to have it geared that low for top gear in my opinion at least yeah that should to me that's like you should be able to cruise very comfortably at high speed that's what that gear should be and they've made it like they've they've just shifted it down and i guess like like oh well you'll keep a better power band when you're at a road course and you're like i'm usually not at a road course (laughs) like and plus road courses have nice long straightaways it would be really cool if i could hit like 180 instead of 160 you know but i don't know i'm sure the engineers know something that i don't (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. It's, I'm sure there there was some focus group where someone was like, I I don't have power to pass on the highway in fifth gear or fifth, or sixth gear or whatever. It's like, well, fucking downshift, dumbass. Yeah, you're not supposed to. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, well, Zach, what what have you been working on? I know that you you finally got your uh, your bolt for your uh, Audi engine. And did you yeah. get it all put together? Oh, did you turn your yep. Audi into an Innie? I did. <laughs> I took I took it, the bolt that was Audi and I put it in and um, I got it all together. Uh, got it running. It was running really smoothly. Couple weird electrical things, just a couple uh, lights on the dash, but I wasn't too concerned. Um, and the plan was always to take it to a shop and just have them take care of uh, the clutch bleeding, uh, just because I had tried that on that car before and I was having a really weird issue where I just couldn't figure out, you know, I didn't know if there was some special bleed technique or machine that needed to be on the car because it's an Audi and everything for those cars is special and unique. Um, So I I took it to a shop and had them take a look at it. And they told me that uh, it was not just the clutch slave cylinder that needed to be, well, I, I broke a clutch slave cylinder, so I was going to have them replace that and then bleed the, the clutch system. And then they informed me that uh, there's about $4,500 worth of work needed uh, due to other issues that the car has. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I hate uh, that. Oh, geez. <laughs> what, what the yeah, fuck so is that was a bummer. to the tune of $4,500? Uh... They're saying new clutch, new flywheel, a bunch of uh, weird specific parts that they have to get direct from Germany, um, and then labor, and then obviously the clutch slave cylinder and the bleed. Um, and, and labor for Audi-specific shops, if you've ever earned, owned a German car and taken it to a shop, you know that their labor does not come cheap. So that's the bulk of the, uh, the price. Uh, my estimates for the price that 
of all the parts that they mentioned to me is uh, just under uh, fifteen hundred bucks. But then uh, labor on top of that is what is really the big chunk of change there. So yeah, do that. If they're nice, yeah. yeah, If they're nice, they'll give me a list. (laughs) Are you on it? So are you already on like Audi forums or something? Because like, yeah, I would. This is the time to do that by yourself. Because oh yeah, clutches are they're 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 you know they can be difficult, and I'm sure with Audi they didn't make it easy, but. Um, I feel like that's something you should, you could probably be capable of doing if you know, like the random parts, that's crazy. $4,500 for a fucking clutch replacement is just outrageous. Yeah. It's, it's absurd. And, um, yeah, like I was saying, if they're real nice, they'll give me their parts list, um, that they came up with. And, uh, luckily they, uh, already pulled the transmission for me to find all this stuff. So I will have to pay them, um, a little bit for that, that labor and, and diagnosis, but hey, that's a that's the bulk of the work. I've pulled the engine, I've pulled the engine and trans. I've pulled the engine by itself. I've done it all before. I've had the clutch and flywheel off the car before. Um, to my okay. eyes, I did. I didn't have any uh, you know gauges or anything to test the flywheel, uh, like feeler gauges or anything like that. But it looked fine to me, so that's why it stayed in. But they're saying you know they. They've looked at it, and in their professional opinion, the cl- uh, the flywheel is bad. And it's actually a new clutch in the car, but they're saying that um, the bad flywheel, they they wouldn't uh, trust the you clutch. You should change them both. You should change them both yeah. if you're going to change one. Um, so yep. you're going to go with like a lightweight flywheel or something? You know, I've been considering it. They're roughly the same price as an OEM flywheel. Uh, my one always are, man. They all, they're I all know. like... It's so it's so tempting. The real reason my car is like so worked up is because the race car parts are cheaper than OEM. That's the secret. (laughs) That's how you get into my my, sorry. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. That's it. You're like, oh well, this stage two plus part is the same price. That sounds better. I'll just put that one in there, and then you keep doing that forever. Yeah, pretty much. But (laughs) I very. I very nearly put a high performance clutch on my uh, my Sabaru, but uh, like the the cheap Chinese, I just went with the cheap Chinese uh, OEM knockoff uh, one, which considering that it's like making some weird noises when I shift, maybe I should have gone with the uh, the other one. But uh, I don't know uh, when I when I did the when I replaced the transmission on my MR2, I don't know, like five years ago. I went with the cheapest throw bearing from Rock Auto, and that, in hindsight, was a mistake. I also probably should have uh, had the clutch or the the flywheel resurfaced, and uh, replaced the um, pilot bushing on that, but I didn't. And uh, now it's making some weird noises when it's idling. Uh, that could be something else. It could be the uh, what do you call it? Vent fan in the engine bay because it. You know, it's a mid-engine car. It's got a little air intake on on one side, so it draws fresh air in that way. And that fan, I think, is making some noise. Or maybe it's the uh, the clutch for the um, air conditioning. I don't know. Whatever. Something's making noise at idle when it's cold. Whatever. Anyways, I'm sorry to take away from what you're nope. saying. Uh, I'm so happy over here that I can <laughs> no 
<laughs> yeah, well, you, you've yeah. never had any problems with your cars, right? Well, yeah, but if I blow up my motor, I'll just go to a junkyard and get a new one for a hundred bucks. <laughs> Which is obviously a joke. They cost like two hundred and fifty at a junkyard. <laughs> I uh, weird tangent, but I actually priced a new engine for that Audi one time just to see. I was like, man, if I catastrophically ruin this motor, what? What am I going to look at for a you know a brand new one? Um, they're they're about seventy five hundred dollars for what? for I a long had block. Three small block the other day because it was a hundred bucks and in good condition. Yeah, Wait, I I miss working on old cars. It was for no. I believe that was for a remanufactured uh, the Audi one. Is that what you're asking about? Yeah, I believe it was a uh, remanufactured or uh, a rebuilt. Long block, oh, okay. not not like a not even a full. It wasn't a short block, but it didn't have all of the accessories on it. You know that's not the worst thing in the world. I can go to Blueprint Motors right now and order a fully dressed, like complete carb to oil pan, three eighty three for like four four thousand, maybe forty five hundred. Oh yeah, that's an attractive option, <laughs> dude. Yeah, and you well, can get like the world's nicest Subaru motor for that much money, basically. At the same time, I will say, you know, look, you spend that money once and it's turnkey and it's, you know, that's hopefully 100,000 miles at least or more, you know, hopefully like 200,000. That's a lot of miles. Like, you pay that money once, it can be worth it. But that, you could also buy a used one, I'm sure, for a lot less. Oh, yeah. But I mean, then I'm you're just, going like, into it's not, it's not perfect, but like, that's what a lot of like, drift folks do is like you know i've known people who just replace 350z motors they're like oh yeah i just got to use one and every everyone i know has got like a new a used uh motor that they dropped in <laughs> for cheap i mean <laughs> it's not perfect but it'll get you by if you catastrophically fail oh yeah oh yeah you know if i can hijack the conversation for a second um my my sabru uh it's it's a Subaru WRX. It's a it's a badge engineered uh, Subaru WRX that looks like a Saab. Anyways, um, it, uh, it the engine's been making some weird sounds. It's it's what sounds like piston slap at a at cold start, and um, the turbo is making some squeaky sounds, which either might be the wastegate actuator or um, the actual turbine running into the housing. I'm not entirely sure. Um, so maybe uh, Zach or maybe the listeners can give me some advice. Like, should I just buy a uh, a short block Subaru lightly used motor? Uh, one of those, uh, quote, 60,000 mile uh, Japanese JDM motors for like they're all, a thousand. They're always 60,000, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to believe uh, that. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> wow all these motors have sixty thousand miles that's amazing yeah and and i've also been contemplating uh getting the um the turbo and manifold uh setup for the jdm sdi that had the equal length headers and the um uh what it twin scroll turbo oh that um, would so be that, cool you know boost comes yeah and i think stock they make around 275 horsepower uh, at the crank, um, but um, 
you know, maybe with the, the mods that I've got, it may, might make a little bit more. But I think that, that turbo and manifold setup, last time I checked on eBay, is like, I don't know, 800 to 1,000 bucks, you know, plus another bad. 800 to 1,000 for the uh, motor. And of course, if I want to get the actual JDM STI motor block, that's like fucking 4,000 bucks or something because they're the closed deck, uh, you know, robust engine block. But uh, I think, you know, 275 to 300 horsepower is within reason on a stock, um, what is it, EJ20, whatever I have on my 2005. Yeah, uh, for sure. Two liter motor. Yeah, I think you're looking at the the upper limit of that motor is probably around uh, just over 300 to the wheels. So I, I'm betting you could probably put 350 to 375 at the crank, and it would uh, it would live through it. That's that's yeah. my approximation. My uh, scientific wild ass guess. Yeah, yeah, my uh, educated non educated guess. I've heard people making uh, with like O fives and I'm sorry, with people making like. Uh, on the 0506 EJs, we're making, I've heard of, like, four and 500, pretty, um, even without new internals, I thought. Maybe I misunderstood, but I thought they could handle more power than that. I mean, maybe briefly. I Yeah. I Those are Okay, good to know. I think, the, I think the question there is longevity. I think you could make 500, 600 horsepower for, you know, I don't know, a week, maybe a month. <laughs> but <laughs> I think I don't okay. think that engine would live too much longer. Yeah, I think yeah, 350 no. at the crank I mean, could live a good life. Yeah, I mean, for a while. Like, I mean, it's it's always going to take life off the engine, depending on how you're driving it. Like, if you're cold starting it and then going full throttle, like that. You mean that, like that how I drive? Gonna, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That thing's gonna gonna crack in half, you know, within twenty thousand miles or something. I don't know. I'm just yeah, I mean, out of my ass. But. That's probably true for any engine, though, or just about. I mean, maybe a, a small block Chevy can handle it, just because they seem to be able to handle just about anything. Oh no! I can Trust me. <laughs> Yeah, my uh, my uh, my terrible financial advice to you, Bryant, is uh, to buy the cheapest. Uh, motor that you can to keep the car running. Uh, pull the pull the engine that you have in there. Send it to Outfront Motorsports. Have them close deck it, and then uh, get a full full twin scroll kit from Full Race Turbo Systems. Uh, you know they run like six to eight grand, but then you could be making six hundred oh, okay. horsepower and have the twin scroll closed deck block. You know, just just send it. Be cool. That would be super cool. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't need to like make a down payment on a house or anything. I just need to, you know, upgrade my Subaru so so it's worth like, you know, $4,000 instead of $3,000. That is there the uh, that is definitely the assumptions I've been operating under. I, Dude, are I you implying you that guys I guys about vans, you can spend all your money on them and then when you lose your house, you still have somewhere to live. Hey, the Subaru is a hatchback. You can kind of live in that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I've camped out of my Sabaru. Like, if I fold down the seats, I can just about lie down in it diagonally in the back. No, I'll tell you where it's like, at. I'm not too tall. Here, no, you you gotta you gotta get yourself a Sprinter van. Whoo, those things are the best. Uh, I lived in one for quite a while. Um, it can be done pretty comfortably, and it's it's a thing. But you know, they work. That's the van you need. 
Sprinter vans are like the bougie version of van living. That's like the high class oh, van life. Oh, for sure. Uh, I was. I mean, I was driving freight, so. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't a fancy one. So I'm. I'm gonna weigh in here. There, there's like this subtle distinction culturally between like van, quote unquote vanners and van lifers. Vanners are, are the dudes who like have like wild ass old school boogie vans and they like they're all decked out on the inside for you to like camp out of or get so hammered that you can't drive and you've got somewhere to sleep. And yeah, like the sprinter vans, that's like the van life, like doing it all for the Instagram likes and all, all that shit. I'm sure that there are some legit people who do that stuff, but all of the ones I meet seem like tools. Oh, I'm, so, I'm just saying, I'm not even saying like, oh, you got to make it all pretty inside. You know, I lived in one, like, sleeping, uh, you know, on an air mattress with a sleeping bag. Uh, you can make it work. Um, they're very spacious. When you don't have freight in the back. Dude, weren't you hauling freight, though? Yeah, well, yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> yes, but usually it was only taking up, like, half the back, and I'd still have room to sleep. But sometimes I would have to sleep in the seat, yeah. But... Even that wasn't so bad. <laughs> You've told me that Sorry, was a bad I, job. I, I, I think it's really sinking oh, it was in the right worst. now how bad that job was. <laughs> oh, I will, t- I will tell the story. It was so bad. Um, but I will say the Sprinter van was, was okay. It was a decent vehicle. So if you need a van, there's something to consider. They're expensive as shit to fix, though. I just didn't have to pay for it. But it sounded expensive. Anyway, I'm done hijacking yeah, the conversation. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> No, I think we've all taken our turn at hijacking. At least I have. Uh, I, I mean, at one point, I was definitely considering uh, living in a van down by the river. And I would probably go with, like, a, you know, uh, I don't know, around 2000-ish uh, Chevy full-size van if I was going to do that. And I think, Brandon, we talked about this, but I would kind of want to put a wood-burning stove in the back of it. Like, I'm sure that's a terrible idea for many reasons, but I think it would be cool. Uh, to, it is to, a terrible you know, idea, but it would van. be cool. It would be cool. I, I mean, maybe put it as far away from the fuel tank and fuel lines as you can, but like, I mean, I, don't know. I think it would be cool. I, I honestly like. I don't think it would be that awful in terms of safety. But you are talking about throwing something that weighs like a couple, two, three hundred pounds into the back of the van. So there's that. Yeah. Um. Yeah, there, there, there's like some functional like difficulties in doing that, but it's been done before. Okay. Um, so, Brandon, what what have you been working on? I know I caught the end of uh, the conversation about your um, what is it, Cutlass that you had? Some oh yeah, I, I gotta I gotta replace the alternator because I think when I had all the electrical problems, I fried the voltage regulator in it. Uh, so I have to do that, and. I put it off because I've been working on the heat in my house, but the heat in my house seems to be working properly now. Um, so, yay, I, yeah, this yay. week, I'm, what's up? We were all cheering. We're celebrating. Sorry. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, I'm very happy. For, for a good week, I was very on edge, like going into the basement like twice a day, seeing if I, something's exploded yet, but it seems to be working properly. The, the alternator and the cutlass, that's... Like, every time I've done an alternator in the last, like, however many years, it was, like, something where I was replacing the alternator on something that was still externally regulated from 50 years ago, or, like, the wiring was a hatchet job or something. So, like, I kind of forgot that they're super easy if you don't have a weird setup. So, um, 
I looked at mine, and it's pretty straightforward. So I'm gonna go swap in a, a new alternator in it this week, and hopefully that's the last thing it needs. Like it was shredding belts because the alternator was getting so hot that it was melting them. Nice. Yeah, you, you're not supposed to put out 19 volts at idle. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's all I've really worked on. I'm I mean, well, no, I haven't even worked on the car. I've just kind of slacked off and monitored the heat in my house, and that's it. Well, thinking about working on the car counts. <laughs> oh well, then I never stop. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, me neither. So just just so anyone knows, it, that's part of it. I'm thinking about working on it all the time, so I'm always working on it. Yeah. Doing that mental work, you know. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not. It's not. I mean, it's not entirely a joke. I mean, I don't know. It's it consumes a great deal of my life. <laughs> I, I have like the classic Protestant work ethic, so I always feel like I should be doing something. Like re- relaxing is kind of stressful for me in a, a weird way. So I'm constantly thinking about like what I need to be doing to this thing or the other thing, and it just yeah, like because cause I can't stop. It's 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 compulsive, but I don't I don't think it's healthy to a certain extent. I, I kind of identify with that a little bit. Like, I always got to be cleaning, or I got... I somehow have more errands to run than most people. Like, and my, <laughs> so, I, there's your, oh, I got to do this today. My, my girlfriend's often like, you don't have to do any of that shit. Like, none of it. <laughs> That's not, like, you don't have to do any of this. And I'm just like, well, yeah, but I have to. I need my car because I need to do all this work. And she's like, no, y- you don't actually. <laughs> Which is how I was convinced that like I could be without a car for a while. So I feel I feel you, Brandon. Always got to be like, oh, I got to be working on something. I got to be studying something or whatever. I, I haven't touched any of my bands in like a month because I just have had to deal with the heating situation in my house, and I just feel like such a lazy piece of shit now. Gotta love that part of it. I guess so. <laughs> yeah, I I always set like. I always set like a goal of doing like ten things over the weekend, and I usually do about five of them. But uh, you know, eh, whatever. It's always I don't know. Hey, I don't know if it's batting, the important things that get done. Or... Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to look. At I it. that's like I'm just shocked that I just made like a sports reference. So that won't happen often. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, unless anyone has anything else, I think I'll just start talking about nuclear-powered vehicles here. Sounds good to me. All right, let's do it. Yeah, let's get into it. Cool. All right, well, so I've got a bunch of notes and links and stuff, and I'll post stuff in the Slack here um, so y'all can see photos and whatever. Um, And then also I'll put that in the notes for the listener. Um, You know, we'll find a way to do that. But uh, like I said, during the Cold War, especially like in the 50s and 60s, there was, I know, this weird mix of like optimism and doom connected to atomic technology. Like on the one hand, there was all these people saying like, oh, you know, there's going to be power, electrical power that's so cheap that, you you know, we're not going to even charge money for it. We're we're just going to. Um, or too, too cheap communism. to meter, I think. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> We're going to beat the communists by being communists. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, basically, there was 
all this optimism for nuclear technology. Like, um, I don't know if any of you have seen that um, 1960s, uh, I think it was a British show called The Thunderbirds with like the puppets, the marionettes. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that was British. I, I remember seeing that one as a kid. Yeah. And and like all I think like all their rockets were nuclear powered, like their their uh, their house had like a nuclear powered oven in it <laughs> and stuff like that. You know, so like all these people were coming up with ideas to, you know, use nuclear technology. And um, but then there was also like the threat of nuclear war was out there and very real. Um, so I don't know. It's kind of. I can I can kind of identify with that sort of sense of dread today. What with you know coronavirus and climate change and fascism and still creeping nuclear into... weapons. Don't forget, they're still a threat. Oh yeah, yeah, they're yeah. Still there. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. One of one of the projects uh, was uh, still being worked on uh, as late as 2018 that I'm going to talk about. So sweet. Yeah, yeah. Let's see, and and you know it's kind of interesting because like a lot of the you know, thanks to Operation Paperclip, a lot of the projects that I'm going to talk about were, you know, built by war criminals. And um, if any of these were actually used, uh, they would constitute war crimes, probably, many of them. Well, America's never cared about that. Don't, don't you worry. That's <laughs> <laughs> never gotten in our way before. It won't, we won't start now. Yeah. So this list I have is is mostly chronological, um, a lot of it came from, uh, the book Atomic Adventures by, uh, James Mahaffey. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, M-A-H-A-F-F-E-Y. Uh, it's a really good book. Um, he also wrote a book called Atomic Accidents, which is just about how people fucked up and died from, you know, doing nuclear research or whatever. Um, all the ways that radiation could kill you and there are many um there none of them are good oh and by the way if i say nuclear instead of nuclear please don't judge me um i have a hard time telling the difference apparently um jimmy carter who was a nuclear engineer in the navy sometimes said nuclear so whatever that's just that's know. just how speech works sometimes sometimes <laughs> Exactly. I didn't yeah. Know. Is there a correct way for, for sure? <laughs> yeah, it's it's nuclear. Okay. Yeah. One of my favorite Simpsons moments is when Homer like really condescendingly tells someone it's pronounced nuclear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that sounds like Yeah, it's it's like a bunch of consonants jammed in there and you want to put a vowel and, you know, break it up, but I don't know. Makes sense. So the earliest, I guess, description of a uh, nuclear-powered vehicle was in 1914. Uh, the novel The World Set Free by H.G. Wells uh, was the first to describe nuclear-powered vehicles that I could find. And then I also found mention of a radium-powered car concept um, in the 1930s, uh, or 1903, excuse me. But then... Some physicists uh, in the 1930s um, did a study on that, and they found that it would require 50 tons of radiation shielding. So it was not a practical solution. Well, you just got to make more low-end torque to, you know, all the extra <laughs> 50 tons. <laughs> yeah. 
Put a, put a towing cam in there. <laughs> well, we're getting to that. So, <laughs> so in 1941, uh, Dr. R.M. Langler, a Caltech physicist, um, published a story in Popular Mechanics, which has always been the bastion of truth and, uh, you know, restraint in, in uh, engineering. Yeah, um, <laughs> they never sensationalize anything, to my knowledge. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, th- this whole story is on Google Books. Uh, it's pretty hilarious. Um, he talks about making a nuclear-powered car uh, with a with a power plant the size of a typewriter, and it combines <laughs> the nuclear reactor and a steam turbine in one unit. Uh, the fuel would be about a pound of uranium two thirty five which would give you a range of about 5,000 miles. And then he also designed uh, roads that would be made by melting dirt into lava with portable nuclear furnaces. So you'd have like just this big paving machine with a nuclear reactor in it that rolls across the countryside melting under everything underneath it. Uh, hold on. All uh, right. This is wait. starting to sound like pretty good ideas. I can, I can see how <laughs> I can see. I was like, okay, I'm on board with this. I mean, it all sounds very way, just blasting the dirt with radiation until it like melts. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Huh? They can road anywhere. This is yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's uh, perfectly safe. Um, he also had an idea for uh rocket powered airplanes that would, uh, have a nuclear reactor that vaporized steel. Uh, so, you know, just have molten steel vapor flying out the back and uh, it would just fall to earth as harmless dust. It's, it's yeah. fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. Cause I had an idea for uh, airplane powered rockets and it was actually didn't really go over that well. So the <laughs> rocket powered airplanes makes a lot more sense. Well, I mean, there have been rocket powered airplanes like the, was it X 15? Uh, I think there's a German one during World War II also, but whatever. There's like, rocket-powered cars if you look. Yeah, 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 totally. Fucking. Uh, uh, which we got to talk about that at some point. I've heard those at the track. I don't under like I, I don't think I've ever like seen one go down. But like while I'm out drifting, they're like, oh yeah, it's the jet car is going to go down the track now, and you hear it start, and you're like, what is happening? Oh, like drag racing? Yeah, you mean? yeah. I, I hear them at the the drag track all the time. They're a little bit less impressive than you think because they don't accelerate as quickly as a lot of like just regular gas engine cars do. Like they're yeah. faster, but you got to give them like a mile long track. Sure. Yeah. I just know yeah. that they sound outrageous. Like, you know, because yeah. I hear them like I'm, a, I'm in grid waiting to go um, start a drift run and like, you just hear it and you're like, there's a jet taking off. <laughs> like this is, I don't feel okay with this. It's too much. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. I just, I had to, I had to. No, no, that's there. good. And, and that reminds me, like, I think before, I don't know, the 1950s or maybe early sixties, there wasn't really a, a, like linguistic distinction between jets and rockets. That's uh. why, JPL is the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where they mostly do rockets. Gotcha. Um, well, they so, do like, some witchcraft too, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, who was that guy that that was doing the black magic? Uh, um, what was that dude's name? Jack Parsons. Uh, yes, yes, you're right. Elron Elron Hubbard's buddy. 
Yeah, he was a weird guy. Yeah. Um, but anyways, like, so if if I'm talking about a jet, it means like self-contained. It you know you're taking the propellant with you. If I'm talking about, or did I fuck that up? If I that's a rocket. Okay, a jet is it breathes air. It it's taking air from the atmosphere, and you know burning fuel or compressing it or heating it or some some variety of that. Hey, this is Brian from the future editing the podcast. I just flubbed a couple things here, so I'm setting the record straight. A jet engine takes air from the outside, compresses it with a turbine, adds fuel, burns it, passes that hot gas through a turbine, which then spins the compressor, and then the exhaust gases go out the back to propel the airplane. So it's a type of internal combustion engine that breathes air from the outside. A rocket engine, on the other hand, takes the fuel and oxidizer with it, so it doesn't take any air out of the uh, atmosphere to breathe. It um, usually has a fuel such as like kerosene, liquid hydrogen, something along those lines, sometimes alcohol or whatever, and then an oxidizer, which is usually liquid oxygen, uh, peroxide, something, um, that when they combine, they react they react and uh, create fire, basically, that goes through a nozzle and out the back of the aircraft or rocket or whatever the vehicle is to propel it. So there's the only moving parts um, in a rocket are usually the pumps to pump the fuel in the oxidizer. And some even don't have that. They just have a tank of pressure that pushes the fuel out um, through the nozzles and everything. So that's the difference. The basic distinction is a jet is what powers an airplane or a drag racing car, you know, for exhibition that Connor was talking about. And a rocket is what flies into space where there's no air. Um, anyways, um, in December 1945, uh, John Wilson of London announced he had created an atomic car. This created considerable interest. The Ministry of Fuel and Power, along with a large press contingent turned out to view it. The car did not show, and Wilson claimed that it had, it had been sabotaged. A later court case found that he was a fraud and there was no nuclear power. So he, car. Pulled, a, he, he pulled a Tucker Carlson. <laughs> uh, we have Tucker the Carlson. evidence, but it was stolen from the mail. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I wasn't quite sure what you were saying there, but yes. <laughs> okay, great. Cool. Got it. Yeah, and some of this I'm just going to be reading from Wikipedia links. Um, let's see. Oh, and it, so it wasn't until 1954 that the the first real nuclear-powered vehicle was built, the USS Nautilus submarine. Um, and I don't really want to talk about nuclear-powered submarines or aircraft carriers that much. Like, I think it's kind of boring. But the Nautilus was kind of interesting because it was the first one to, like, go underneath the Arctic ice um, they used it for a lot of, you know, PR stuff, but it was like a functional Navy ship. Um, the Soviet Union followed in 1958 with the K3 Leninsky Komsomol. Uh, whatever. It's, it's a submarine. Um, <laughs> uh, one, one kind of interesting note about the U.S. nuclear program uh, it was kind of the baby of this guy named Admiral Hyman G. Rickover. 
Uh, yes, his first name was Hyman. That's unfortunate. Yeah, and if you listen to all the the weird thorium reactor cranks on the internet, uh, he is basically the devil because he invested early in um, pressurized water reactors with enriched uranium. And this is basically like what most nuclear reactors, either in a boat or in you know land-based uh, reactors, uh, use this design. Uh, so that's why you know they they say oh we we got stuck in the uh the rickover trap of of using this this uh, uranium power we really should be using thorium which is much better which you know yeah maybe but what are you going to do about it so also russia uses lots of nuclear powered icebreaker ships um that's kind of interesting uh but i also found there's a few or at least there were a few nuclear-powered cargo ships. Um, there was the Japanese Mutsu, the German Otto Hahn, uh, both of which were later converted to diesel power because it, I think because no uh, ports wanted to actually allow nuclear-powered vehicles in them. They're, like, scared of it for whatever reason. And then there was the American NS Savannah, Savannah, whatever, the city of Georgia, uh, so NS stands for nuclear ship. Um, and that was kind of, that one's kind of interesting cause it was designed as a bulk ca- cargo slash passenger ship. Uh, basically bar- bulk cargo was like before container ships, they had, they just loaded everything into a big hole in the ship, uh, you know, one piece at a time, uh, or in crates or whatever. And it's, it still exists, although it's being decommissioned in like Maryland or something. And then uh, there was also the Soviet uh, Sev Sevmorput, Sevmorput, uh, which is actually still in service. Um, it's in, uh, I believe, the Pacific Ocean, so like in the the port cities, sort of like north of Japan, uh, runs a route there. Um, and that one was, I, I believe, it was a. Um, oh shoot, I forget the the name for it, but it's basically like in between bulk cargo and container, they had this other system where they like loaded up barges with cargo and then they would put the barges on top of the ship. Um, it was a really weird system, but I think nowadays it's, it's just containers is what they use on that. Uh, they're called lighters. I forgot the word there. So, uh, and, and check out the photos of the Savannah. It's pretty cool. Like they were one of the first ships to have, a microwave oven in the kitchen. So it was pretty high tech for its day. And then in 1955, uh, Chrysler presented a design for the TV eight, a very weird tank uh, with the engine and crew in a giant turret. And then a small set of electrically driven tracks underneath. So like most tanks, you have the chassis with the engine and the driver and the, uh, treads and everything and then you have the turret that just has the gun on it and the gunner uh, this they combined everything into the turret and then just the tracks underneath it huh. it looks super weird um, I'll post the link here um, so they never built it other than just a mock up uh, but at one point there was a design to use a compact nuclear reactor for the power plant um, 
They also had designs for a gas turbine engine, a vapor cycle engine, like the Naphtha launch that we were talking about before. And then also just a Chrysler V8. And uh, they also designed it to be uh, I'd rather amphibious. have Mopar than no car. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I like how it's like, well, we could do nuclear power, or we could just put a Chrysler V8 in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. You know it was a 440. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. There was no other engine in my mind. <laughs> and I want to say, like, someone made a mod for like World of Tanks that you can drive one of these or one of those one of those tank shooting about games. I'm not really a gamer, but uh, yeah, it's it's just super weird looking. Like they also designed it so it would float. It would be amphibious, and then it had like a little jet ski impeller on the back oh, to to push it along. That's kind of funny. I bet it moved at like yeah. three miles per hour. Though. Right, right. <laughs> so there's been a couple different designs for nuclear powered trains. Uh, so as early as 1956, the Soviet Ministry of Transportation uh, explored the possibility of uh, the idea was to have nuclear locomotives for like remote routes out in Siberia, so you wouldn't need to like truck fuel out there or you know move fuel out there. Um, and the idea was also that you could provide electrical power to a small town in case of an emergency. So you could just roll into town and hook your train up to the power grid and, and power the whole town that way. So hold on. Did they ever create this? Cause it's again, sounds like kind of a good idea. I'm very on board with most of these, <laughs> these applications. No. Well, I mean, the problem is what happens when it crashes, right? Eh, like who cares? <laughs> like, so I think I know that in Russia they have uh, made uh, like use nuclear aircraft carriers or submarines or other nuclear powered ships uh, for similar, uh, you know, emergency power situations. And I think they also did just like they put a, a nuclear reactor on a barge just for that purpose. Um, and that works fine. Like, but no one's done it on a train before, as far as I know. Well, see, I, mean, I feel like um, I'm, I get why a nuclear-powered car, not a great idea. Train, however, uh, jury's still out for me. Uh, I get yeah. it. It's a, I mean, it makes a little bit more sense. Like, I guess if it works most in a of sub, the... It, it should work in a train, is my, is my thinking. Yeah, and, and I mean, also the, new, the University of Utah uh, also explored this concept. So, like, one of the links I posted, um, that has, like, a big illustration of of the sort of like cutaway view of the um uh of the train and like all the components in it and they have a whole car in the back that's just the radiator because it produces so much heat oh wow um yeah but um i mean like if you think about it all the all the high-speed trains in france that are electric are mostly nuclear powered because france gets a lot of their power from nuclear reactors and that seems to be like the easier and safer solution is just, oh yeah, okay, you know, have have the what do you call it, the panograph on top of the train that gets power from stationary nuclear reactor. Hmm. Oh wait, I think I misheard you. You 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 said that they don't actually have nuclear trains. Their trains are just electric and get powered by like nuclear. Yes. Re- okay, I follow you. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I don't think anyone's actually built a 
nuclear powered train. Like it's possible, but again, what happens when it crashes, you know? I feel like um, trains don't crash very often. They're on set tracks. I mean, it yeah. happens but in America most. It happens in America. I don't think it happens anywhere else. It definitely I mean, happens it, in England. Does it? Okay. Yeah. Well, there was that thing a couple years ago in, was it Canada or like on the border of Canada and the US it's where like that Seattle. train crashed? And See, again, it was America where we don't, where we don't do anything about our infrastructure. <laughs> so everything's right. outdated. I'm just saying, you know, I, you got like Japan and China with like real trains. I think they'd probably be pretty good. Yeah. And I read some sci-fi book where they had nuclear powered trains, but it was like seen as a weird thing but anyway that's another story yep sorry um oh no sorry i wasn't trying to hurry us along i i don't know i was just thinking in my add way um let's see so in the late 50s there were a few different uh concept cars that explored the idea of nuclear power uh probably the most famous is the 1957 ford nucleon concept uh this is a sleek two-seater uh, like to be powered by a miniaturized submarine reactor. Um, and the idea was that it could be swapped out at a gas station. Yeah. You know, just just pull in there, <laughs> you know, park it over the lift and say, hey, swap out the reactor for me. Oh, boy. I know people who have uh, 240s that are like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I'm going to swap the engine this month. <laughs> <laughs> oh that one ran out of yeah. gas i needed i needed a different engine now <laughs> pretty much yeah so again they were saying it would last five thousand miles uh but of course that miniaturized reactor design never materialized and uh it seems also no one thought about what would happen if it crashed uh so they only built a scale model uh it does look pretty cool but well, I mean, how common really are car crashes? Right, yeah. <laughs> it never happens. Um, now, I know, I personally have other... only been in a few. Yeah, and, you know, it, it wouldn't really have mattered if, if someone had set off a dirty bomb during that car crash, right? So there's a few other manufacturers that designed nuclear-powered concept cars. Uh, there was the 1957 Studebaker was it Studebaker or Packard? Uh, Astral, um, which had a single gyroscopic wheel, so it was like a it was like a self balancing uh, what do you call it? Mono wheel sort oh, of deal. Oh, that's outrageous! Yeah. <clears throat> um, there was the fifty seven Arbel Symmetric, which had glow in the dark bumpers. Okay, that I kind of um, like. I'm with that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they they were all just throwing shit out there in the fifties. Were they glowing in the dark because they were so radioactive? <laughs> I mean, probably <laughs> they probably put fucking radium in in the in the bumpers. You know, um, there's other podcasts that have talked about the radium girls. If you want to be horrified about you know people's jaws falling off, check that out. Let's see, there was the fifty. 58 Simca Fulgar, Ful, Fulger, Fulger, whatever, something French, uh, which had a radar, radar guidance system. Uh, so, you know, before radar cruise control was a thing. 
1962 Ford Seattle Light. So like Seattle, the city, satellite, haha, get it? Womp, uh, which, womp. Had, which had six wheels. Okay, uh, I'm on board. And then, and then in 2013, Cadillac came out with the World Thorium Fuel concept. Yeah, that's a pretty. That thing's pretty wild looking. Yeah, and then also in the Fallout games, there was nuclear powered cars, which I think they blew up if you shoot them. Most spectacularly, they do. Yeah, I haven't played those, but my brother was into it. So this next one, I'm not sure if it really counts as a nuclear powered vehicle because it wasn't designed as a vehicle. Uh, it didn't carry anything and it might've been vaporized uh, right immediately after, uh, after it left uh, the ground. So if it did survive, it was, and still is probably the fastest nuclear powered vehicle ever uh, built. It was sort of a unusual side effect of the Pascal B underground nuclear bomb test. Uh, and this was, part of a larger series of tests uh, called Operation Plum Bob, uh, which you should read about it if you got some time. Um, they killed like a thousand pigs just to see what would happen to people at different distances from the epicenter of an explosion. Grizzly. Just lined up. Jesus. Yeah, they just lined up a bunch of pigs. <laughs> okay. And nuked them. I don't approve of this. God. <laughs> Yeah, not not vegan friendly. Um, I feel like we had a pretty good idea of what was going to happen to like 990 of them. <laughs> I get maybe the last 10. Okay, maybe we need to see what happens at this distance. But like the first 990, we knew it was happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, they also did. They also tested an air to air missile with a nuclear warhead that they exploded 20,000 feet above the test site. And they had a bunch of uh, military officers standing below ground zero just to see how nice. safe it was, you know. Nice. Oof, that is... <laughs> boy, you want to serve your country. <laughs> this is what it takes. Oh, man. So how did the... Did, did you happen to look into how those uh, wonderful, brave men and women... Well, men at the time. Um, definitely just men. How did they fare? Uh, as far as I can tell, they they all survived, um, you know, unscathed. I don't, I don't think any of them died of cancer, you know. Uh, okay, statistically, some of them had to have died from yeah, cancer. Yeah, well, some of them definitely did. Right. But in- interesting. That's okay. Yeah. Um, if you want to, like, that reminds me, like, there was a, there was a movie in the 60s uh, called The Conqueror starring uh, John Wayne where he played Genghis Khan. Oh God! Uh, which course. is just as terrible as you can imagine. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. My ability but, um, to imagine terribleness is pretty extensive. <laughs> yeah, and um, it was also it was I think it was directed or produced by uh, Howard Hughes, and they filmed it in the Nevada desert, uh, sort of downwind from all the nuclear testing, and something like thirty percent of the cast and crew died of cancer. Ugh. So, yeah, that was not fun. But anyways, um, was it profitable operation... to the was it profitable, though, for, for the shareholders? It's <laughs> a good question. Yeah, I mean, did they still turn a profit after like the, the settlements and all? You know, that's important. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm sure Howard Hughes, you know, was able to buy plenty of piss jars 
in his later years. But uh, yeah, so Pascal B was uh, it was part of a series of underground tests uh, meant to study fallout contamination. There was a it was a bomb that was equivalent to 300 tons of TNT, so pretty small, uh, smaller than like Hiroshima. Uh, and they put it in a 500 deep, uh, 500 foot deep uh, borehole. So they dug a hole 500 foot deep, put the bomb at the bottom, poured a little bit of concrete over the top of that, the bomb, and then put a one ton steel cap on top uh-huh. and welded it in place. Yep. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, astrophysicist uh, Bob Brownlee was in charge of this test, and he predicted that welding the cap on would do nothing to to contain the blast. But uh, uh, you know, thought, hey, what the hell? We'll we'll go along with it. Um, so when the bomb was detonated, it uh, vaporized the concrete, uh, which sure expanded straight up the test shaft. Um, and it launched the cap into the atmosphere at a speed of more than 125,000 miles per hour. Oh, oh. Uh, which So hold on. Which so wait. Is, so I'm confused because NASA isn't using this to launch rockets. <laughs> Why is that? Well, well, we'll get to that. Um, so it if it survived uh, the atmospheric friction, um, it would have been going about five times the Earth's escape velocity. Uh, and it would be off, you know, beyond Pluto or whatever by now. Um, but they only saw it in one frame of the film. (laughs) (laughs) So, so they're like in between when we triggered the blast and this frame of film, it was here. So it might've been actually going faster than, than that. Um, (laughs) It was still accelerating when they timed it. Yeah. So like, they're like, yeah, it was probably going this fast. Uh, We don't know. Um, So this was in August of 1957. So it would have beat Sputnik into space by two months. (laughs) Hey, uh, take that commies. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it probably burned up in the atmosphere, but that's boring. So I... I choose to believe that it's off in space somewhere. I like to believe it's off in space somewhere. Wow, that's um, yeah. that's pretty uh, pretty impressive. Okay, yeah. Um, so the next year, 1958, uh, work began on Project Orion, which was a more formalized plan to use nuclear explosions to propel a spaceship. Uh, this was actually uh, a concept that was started or came up with earlier by uh, physicist uh, Stanislav Ulam. Um, but this project was uh, headed up by uh, Ted Taylor of General Atomics and uh, British physicist uh, Freeman Dyson of the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. And both of these were basically like Cold War think tanks where they just like, you know, shoveled a bunch of money at people to like come up with weird shit. And the basic idea was to build this freaking huge spaceship that weighed over 800 tons. And at the bottom of it, it had a pusher plate um, with massive springs and shock absorbers uh, in between it and the main body of the spaceship. And then small nuclear bombs would be ejected out the bottom of the ship 
and explode a few hundred feet underneath the pusher plate. And then the shock absorbers would sort of smooth out the acceleration for the passengers. Naturally, yeah. Did you say that? Yeah. Did you say that the Acme Corporation was behind there? Like <laughs> <laughs> Looney Tunes bullshit. There is no yeah, way pretty much that was ever going to work. Yeah. I the mean, extra wild part was their test animal was a, a coyote. Uh, his name was Wiley. Uh, there's there's a lot of documentary films about him from back in the day. I'll have to look yeah. into those. Yeah, that sounds yeah. interesting. <laughs> yeah, they usually were, resulted uh, pretty poorly for him. He was. <laughs> He was resilient, though. Yeah, and um, they actually consulted, uh, I think it was uh, Coca-Cola vending machine division on how to push the nuclear bombs out the back. Um, (laughs) Oh, come on. That's just that's just comedy right there. (laughs) Yeah. And they had a they had a mechanism where they would like change the yield of the bombs on the fly. I don't quite understand the mechanism for that, but like the idea was, oh, if we want to, you know, uh, really put the pedal to the metal, we'll dial up the yield on these bombs. But if we just want to cruise, we'll we'll make them a little bit more mild. <laughs> sure. um, yeah. So if if you launched it from the surface uh, level, just from the ground, uh, it would require between eight hundred and a thousand warheads exploding underneath it to reach orbit. This was kind of frowned upon uh, by, let's say the, the people that came up with the nuclear test ban treaty uh, and also just like environmentalists, you know, with Hold fallout and all that kind of thing. So, so it would take like 800 to a thousand like warhead grade explosions just to get into orbit. Yeah, they were, they were relatively small uh, warheads. I forget exactly, but like, uh, you know, a few, few kiloton, okay. uh, something like that. And uh, they, they came up with plans for a few different sizes of spaceships. Uh, the largest was an interplanetary ex- exploration ship that would weigh 10,000 tons. And they had like, oh, hey, we're going to go fucking visit Jupiter and then mm. Saturn. And then they had this whole route planned out. It's very optimistic. Like this is yeah. the optimism part of the... Clearly. <laughs> yeah, so as I said, there was this pesky thing called the 1963 Partial Test Ban Treaty that kind of put the kibosh on it. Also, Kennedy came and saw like some of the work that they had been doing and is like, what the fuck is wrong with you guys? <laughs> and kind of <laughs> kind of canceled the program. Um, they did test a few scale models with conventional explosives, so no nuclear bombs. Uh, and it seemed to work pretty well. Like, you know, they made this little rocket with a shock absorber on the back and set off some bombs underneath it and it flew up in the air. And yeah, hey, come on. And at one point they, you know, they transferred it from NASA to, I think, the Air Force. And the idea was like, we can deliver, you know, a thousand troops to any corner of the world in like 20 minutes with this thing. Oh, see, that's that's the uh, real benefit there. That's what we really needed. Yeah, troops anywhere on the pl- in the planet, anytime. That's what we need. Well, that was before we yeah. figured out that it was an easier plan to just already have that many troops on every corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's been working well. Plus, I mean, we got uh, we got SpaceX creating uh, new little rocket cargo cargo ships that'll carry supplies to anywhere in the world. That's 
that's great. That's wonderful ingenuity, and it'll help uh, help perpetuate our uh, global hegemonic power, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I believe what you were looking for is intergalactic hegemonic power. Beautiful, yeah. Yes. Space Force. <laughs> Space Force, man. Um, yeah, so there's a few different concepts. Like they, they talked about just um, not launching nuclear bombs on the surface, but, you know, putting everything into space and then sending off the bombs. There was also a concept called Medusa, which instead of the pusher plate, it had a big old parachute in front of the ship and then a spool of steel cable rather than the shock absorbers. So like the bomb would go off, the parachute would go out in front, the spool would unspool. So it'd be like, you know, a fishing line going out and then you would reel it back in. And uh, this had the added benefit of, you know, you could put a electrical generator on the spool. And so when um, it unspools, you're creating electricity and then you're using the electric motor to pull you back uh, in place. So that that was never tested. It was just a concept that someone came up with. Um, and there's a there's a really cool um, documentary that the BBC did a few years ago uh, called "The Secret History of Project Orion to Mars and Back" by A Bomb. Uh, it's on YouTube. I'll post the link here. Um, and it's got uh, interviews with Freeman Dyson uh, and his son George, who wrote a book about the project, which I might have to pick up that book eventually. Uh, it sounds pretty interesting. And then there's been a few fictional versions of this concept. Uh, there's a novel footfall by uh, Larry Neven and Jerry Pornell, which I thought I read that book. I thought it kind of sucked. Um, and then there's a TV show called Ascension, which takes place on one of these ships where it's like a colony ship to Alpha Centauri or something. Uh, that that takes off like in the late 60s, I think. I haven't watched it. Um, I think it's on Amazon or something. It sounds vaguely familiar. Uh, yeah, it sounds kind of interesting. So maybe if I'm really bored, I'll pay to watch that someday. I forgot why I put this in here, but I have in my notes. This is like semi-automated luxury straight space capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So. Of course... It could never be achieved, naturally. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, that's perfect, though. So, the next three projects uh we're all sort of part of one category uh these were vehicles designed in the 50s and early 60s to deliver nuclear bombs across continents uh before the invention of icbm icbms or uh lightweight hydrogen bombs uh so you know now icbm that's intercontinental bowel movement right (laughs) bowel movement no unfortunately uh intercontinental ballistic missiles so before like Sputnik and uh, whatever the American one was, there was, you know, you had to put things in bombers and fly them across the ocean. And a lot of the bombs were, you know, big and heavy. Like think of uh, Fat Man. Um, oh, hold on. I'm going to blow my nose. Hopefully we can edit this out. 
Oh, that wasn't that bad. We don't have to add it up. <laughs> the listeners, can, we have bodily functions, all right? The listeners can know that. No, no, I'm just the brain in a jar. Don't break the illusion. <clears throat> okay, so all three of these projects, uh, at one point in the design process, would use a different variant of the same air-cooled reactor design uh, with ceramic and or graphite core support structures. Uh, so these are nuclear jet engines and rocket engines, and they promised the necessary thrust and range for nuclear bombers and nuclear-powered ICBMs. Before the advent of ICBMs, uh, the Soviet Union and the U.S. built huge fleets of bombers like the B-52 and the Tu-95 as part of the Cold War brinksmanship. Uh, The Strategic Air Command at one point had bombers circling continuously over the Arctic, ready to cross over into Soviet airspace and rain death upon our commie enemies. Check out the documentary Dr. Strangelove for more info (laughs) on that. But, you know, that had the uh, disadvantage of requiring stopovers in Greenland for refueling or, uh, you know, midair refueling, which hadn't really been totally figured out yet. And someone was thinking, what if a bomber could stay aloft and ready for months at a time Kind of like how a nuclear-powered submarine can stay underwater for months at a time. Makes sense. So someone read a lot of comic books and got inspired. <laughs> yeah, someone read that uh, Popular Mechanics uh, article and is like, oh, okay. So this was the motivation for the Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Project. Uh, it began as early as 1946, and then it split into two separate designs developed by General Electric and Pratt & Whitney. The direct cycle engines developed by GE uh, would resemble a conventional jet engine, except instead of combustion chambers, uh, the air from the compressor section would be directed into the nuclear reactor core, heating up the air. And then it would be directed back through the turbine to provide power for the compressor, and then out the exhaust to make thrust. So they actually built a prototype of this engine, and they tested it on the ground, uh, but they never achieved the intended power level. And, you know, it was pretty heavy with all the radiation shielding and whatnot. Um, And it had the drawback of spewing radioactive particles out the exhaust. And uh, it was canceled after the reactor melted down during testing. (laughs) They decided not the best design. Pratt & Whitney developed an indirect cycle engine in which the reactor heated a fluid such as water or molten sodium, uh, and then that was pumped into heat exchangers in the engines. Uh, This had the advantage of spreading less radiation in the air, but it was much heavier and more complex. And also, if you know anything about sodium, uh, you know, pure metallic sodium, when you expose it to oxygen or water, it catches fire and uh, produces um, sodium hydroxide, which is lye, like what you make soap out of, which is very caustic, you know, if you've seen the the documentary Fight Club, you know, where <laughs> Ed Norton gets his hand burned. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, got some problems. Yeah, uh, there's a bunch of people, like, in the 50s and 60s trying to make uh, sodium-cooled reactors. Like, I don't know why it sounds like a terrible idea. Like, another 
bad, you know, downside of that is like if if you have to shut off the reactor, it all turns solid again, and then your reactor core is like encased in solid sodium. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this this reactor was never installed in an aircraft. Although that didn't stop the Air Force from commissioning designs uh, for the proposed NX-2A bomber, which was, I think it was based on a B-29, modified B-29. So this project required a lot of testing because no one knew what would happen to common aircraft parts when exposed to high levels of radiation. So they built a... Oh, I'm sorry. The NX-2A was not based off of a B-29. It was its own thing. It was like a Delta Wing bomber. Anyways, so they built this testing rig at the Georgia Nuclear Aircraft Laboratory. And this was very close to uh, where James uh, Mahaffey lived. So he's got a a detailed uh, part in his book, Atomic Adventures, about this uh, testing rig. Um, It's... For anyone that has the book uh, following along at home, it's uh, pages uh, 79 to 80 of Atomic Adventures. And I'll also post uh, an article uh, from a local newspaper about the uh, this testing rig. But basically, they had a, uh, a nuclear reactor in a pit, um, in a shed, and then an automated railroad running uh, past the pit in the shed. Um, so they take samples of aircraft parts and they'd put them on the train cars. They roll them up next to this pit. And then after everyone was safely away, the reactor would, uh, be turned on and then it would lift into the air on a hydraulic ram right next to the train car. So shooting radiation out into the train car, and then they would lower it down. The train cars would be moved, uh, to a shed They'd let them cool off for a couple days, and then they'd uh, use like remote control robots to uh, um, study the samples. Okay, here we go. So I'm just going to read from uh, this book, Atomic Adventures. In June 1959, the radiation effects reactor was first run at full power for an extended time and managed to kill every living thing within 100,000 feet, excuse me, 1,000 feet, with the possible exception of weeds. Pine trees seem the most sensitive, while crabgrass seemed immune. So pausing for a second for commentary. Mm. Basically, they they didn't have any radiation shielding around this reactor. They would just they had just a fence around the the building, you know, a thousand feet back or so. And then they had a bunker where all the uh, controls were. So uh, let's see. Oak trees became confused as to when leaves should be shed and new buds developed. One ex- mm. In one extended power run, the landscape around the reactor received a radiation dose equivalent to the fallout from large-scale nuclear warfare. The landscape dosage was up to 100,000 rads. The lab personnel noticed a phenomenon which they called instant taxidermy, in which if a small animal, such as a toad or a bird, happened to be near the reactor building during a power run, the unfortunate creature would perish along with all the bacteria on, in, or around it, leading to... (laughs) Interesting preservation. Uh, One big question for the nuclear aircraft program concerned the effect that a flyover would have on crops and farm animals, and much animal work was planned. Many rats died for their country at the GNAL. 
The largest organism to be hosed down with radiation was a mule. Imagine, if you will, a dead, thoroughly irradiated mule that will not degrade normally over time. Uh, I, I don't want there, to imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> there was another extended full power run in August of 1960. By that time, the ANP program was in deep kimchi. Not sure what that means. As the rapid development of guided missile was obsoleting the need for man bombers of dubious utility. The Air Force was digesting the data from the lab in Georgia and other test sites and was beginning to realize the hazards involved with flying this nuclear-powered gizmo. Rubber airplane tires, as it turns out, turn liquid under radiation bombardment. Hydraulic fluid turns into chewing gum, and solid-state electronic circuitry stops working. It was seriously suggested that older pilots be used beyond the age of fathering children to, <laughs> to minimi minimize genetic mutations due to radiation exposure in the cockpit. <laughs> <laughs> this is normal this is yeah, normal yeah. things to think about oh my god uh, the program was cancelled and the latest findings caused the AEC to forbid the air force from flying the nuclear bomber over the US thank god yeah. <laughs> oh no and that was uh, pages 65 and 67 sorry I think I said something wrong before so, yeah, uh, turns out this was not such a good idea. Um, the Soviets also explored uh, this concept, and they started working on their own design with a Tu-95 bomber, uh, but they ran into the same problems. So both the U.S. and the USSR, they did a little test where, where they, you know, made a nuclear reactor and flew it in a, in a regular bomber. So just, you know, put it in the bomb bay with a, bu with a bunch of radiation shielding around it just to see if it would work to fly a nuclear reactor around. It wasn't actually powering the engines or anything. But the Soviets, you know, thought, hey, this is a dumb idea. There's a, you know, how are you going to service this thing when it's on the ground? That was part of the testing at the Georgia laboratory. And also, like, what happens if it crashes? You know, it's going to be pretty terrible. They did kind of get one over on the U.S. Uh, they made a hoax in 1958 uh, where they sort of told, they sort of leaked it to American spies that they were testing a uh, prototype M50 bomber uh, with a nuclear power power plant. And it was actually reported in uh, the magazine Aviation Week, but it was just a hoax to, to fuck with the Americans, I guess. Did it work? <laughs> no, no. I mean Okay. Like, did the hoax work? Oh, the hoax worked, yeah. I mean, they figured it out eventually, but, like... I mean, so yeah. did they, like, start, like, oh, we gotta start doing this? I think I think the Americans started the their projects first. You know, it was in the early 50s. And then the Soviets got wind of it and said, hey, maybe we should look into this, too. And they very quickly realized, no, this is a dumb idea. The The Georgia Nuclear Aircraft Laboratory was actually being used up until the 70s, I think, just in case they decided to, you know, reopen the project. You know, after the after this airplane project was canceled, they still were testing, you know, various materials to uh, oh, see course. what happened. Yeah. I mean, of course, that's why we can't have free college or medical college. <laughs> because when the projects get canceled, they have to keep running just in case. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, and one little tidbit. Um, I think it's in the article that I posted, but um, when they were building the laboratory, they had to clear a bunch of trees. And I guess because of some secrecy or whatever, they couldn't get the trees out and just sell them. So they just piled them up and burned them in a giant bonfire. And a bunch of the locals were like, what the fuck is going on there? There's just <laughs> this giant, you know, uh, glow coming from the side of the hill over there. Like, so it raised more we... questions. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting how that happened. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, to, to celebrate their discretion, they had the largest bonfire ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, That's like when I routinely like celebrate my sobriety by getting shit-faced hammered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, nothing to see here. Just burning a lot of stuff for no reason. Don't worry. Okay, so the next project is probably the most batshit crazy plan that I've seen. Well, I mean, it's up there with um, Project Orion, you know, blowing up bombs underneath you. Uh, But this is uh, Project Pluto, uh, which I'm pretty sure was conceived by cold-eyed psychopaths. Like, this this would definitely be a war crime if it was ever used. Uh, It was a nuclear-powered cruise missile powered by a supersonic ramjet engine. So kind of similar to GE's direct cycle engine, but without the turbines and compressors. So a ramjet works, has no moving parts. It's basically you have to get up to a certain speed for it to work. And then you just the air coming in is compressed with a nozzle and then heated up. Usually you burn uh, fuel to do this, but they were using um, a nuclear reactor to heat up the air. And then it expands out the back. And you got thrust. So the idea was you would launch this with some regular rocket boosters. And then once up to speed, the reactor would be brought up to criticality. Uh, And then at that point, the missile could fly around for several months at a time before it ran out of fuel. And the idea was you'd just have it circling up above, you know, like in the Arctic Circle or like, I don't know, around Alaska. Or a country you you didn't like. Yeah, Just yeah. Letting, I mean, letting them know that oh, the bomb's like there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then when you needed it, uh, it would drop to low altitude to avoid radar, and it was able to contain multiple warheads, so it could, you know, drop warheads on several different targets along uh, a path, and then of course it would be spewing all kinds of harmful radiation along the way. <laughs> So, like, imagine that poor mule in Georgia, you know, but it's in, uh, I don't know, Siberia somewhere getting uh, getting nuked along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once it dropped all the bombs, uh, it could either fly around for a little while and irradiate the area some more or just crash into a target and make a dirty bomb, you know. <laughs> Wonderful. All yeah. right. How nice. Yeah. Like I said, cold-eyed psychopaths. Yeah. So they had to create a lot of new technologies for this project, like the guidance system, a lot of metallurgy and material science. Um, They made pneumatic motors that uh, had to operate while red hot and being irradiated. Basically pneumatic motors to move the control rods in and out of the reactor. And then uh, the reactor, I thought this was kind of of funny. It was uh, codenamed Tory like the British Conservative Party. Hmm. Um, 
and it uh, had to survive high temperatures and conditions that would melt the metals used in most jet and rocket engines. So they used ceramic fuel elements, and these were actually manufactured at the Coors Porcelain Company in Golden, Colorado, uh, which I used to live about four blocks away from. Interesting. Uh, So, yeah, for further reading, uh, check out the... The Dollop did a podcast about the Coors family and how terrible they are. This reactor was tested twice at Jackass Flats in Nevada, uh, running successfully for I'm sorry, five. Tested, I'm sorry, it was tested where? Uh, yeah, Jackass Flats. I forget the code name. Oh, you for, just you just like, went you just went right past that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, no no uh, donkeys were harmed in the making of this uh, one, but uh, that was like one of the main test sites for uh i think i think operation plum bomb plum bob or the yeah plum bob yeah yeah i think that was uh in the same area i think it was like area 27 was the code name for it i think uh, i want to move to jackass flats that sounds like a place i could really thrive uh <laughs> i i don't think you do it's very radioactive um and just in the middle of the desert also, so that doesn't make it any more toxic than what my, <laughs> is going on in my life right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they tested it successfully for five minutes at full power. So they needed a whole lot of uh, compressed air to test this because, you know, it's on the ground. They can't get it supersonic. Uh, so they got 25 miles of oil well pipe to store compressed air in. And then in 1964, it was canceled because the top brass of the Pentagon thought it was too provocative uh, towards the Soviet Union, which probably the right move. I also found an unconfirmed uh, anecdote or rumor that the FAA would not uh, allow them to test fly it, uh, which also a good move, I would say. Wow. That's so some good things happened in America yes. where we were like, hey, let's pump the brakes on this, huh? Yeah, well, uh, but then in 2018, Vladimir Putin announced the development of the 9M730 Burevestnik, uh, which is basically the same concept, a nuclear-powered cruise missile. Um, Wonderful. Yeah, so we got that to look forward to. You know, after we... So ICBMs were developed before compact... Compact bombs were so at at one point they needed more powerful engines to carry these heavy bombs, um, and that's what uh, led to Project Rover and the nuclear engine for rocket vehicle application or NERVA. This was a nuclear powered rocket engine that was going to be used for the upper stages of ICBMs. It was basically the same uh, ceramic core engine as uh, previous. But it used uh, liquid hydrogen as the fuel or the propellant, I guess, and highly enriched uranium. And then so hydrogen is also a uh, neutron moderator. And that basically means that the reactor would get hotter the more hydrogen you pumped through it. Hmm. And so you could also you could kind of control the power just by the, the flow of hydrogen. Um, so liquid hydrogen starts at uh, negative 200, or let's see, negative 480 Fahrenheit. But after it passed through the reactor, it was about 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's a huge differential right there. That's... Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so again, at Jackass Flats, they did a couple tests. 
Um, and it had pretty promising results. Uh, they were getting about twice the performance of a conventional rocket. And they also did destructive testing, which basically mean they blew it up to see what would happen. And the way they did this was uh, they they moved the controls at 22 times their normal speed, and this blew it up. This was uh, January 12th, 1965, and the fallout from this explosion uh, went over Los Angeles. So if you were living in L.A. at that time, yeah, sorry. Yikes. This project was a favorite of New Mexico Senator Clinton P. Anderson. Uh, basically, he wanted to get more funding for Los Alamos, which was uh, in New Mexico. Oh, uh, there's never any good Clintons. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, so this was this project was transferred to NASA um, after it became obsolete for ICBMs, and uh, at one point they were thinking about using it for a Mars mission, uh, for Voyager probes, um, but then eventually it was canceled as part of budget cuts in the seventies. And then um, the Soviet Union had a similar project. Uh, it was called the RD zero four one zero. And they also tested it, but uh, maybe a little bit more wisely. They tested it underground to capture the fallout. And supposedly it was more powerful and reliable than the American Nerva engine. Uh, I couldn't, I mean, I didn't quite understand the science of this. Uh, It says that it had uh, thermal insulation between uranium carbide slash tungsten carbide fuel and the zirconium hydride moderator. I don't know what any of that means, but uh, apparently it was better. Well, and, and they at least thought it. So they at least thought ahead and thought like maybe we shouldn't irradiate our own population. Is yeah. that what I'm getting from this? I, I don't think okay. there's any science to support that. <laughs> <laughs> so this was in development as late as the 1980s uh, as a possible upper stage for again missions to the moon and Mars uh, for the Russian. Uh, or a Soviet space program. Uh, and then they were thinking as late as 2018 for unmanned probes, but I couldn't find a whole lot of information about this one, but I don't know. I thought it was kind of interesting. So the last project I have, I couldn't find any confirmation if this was actually real, if it was actually built. Uh, a lot of it was just, you know, rumors and speculation and um, yeah. So the only sources I could find were a YouTube video, a Russian tabloid newspaper, and a Jalopnik article. So take this all with a grain of salt. So we're talking about the Soviet battle mole, or the nuclear subterrane. So this was a weaponized tunnel boring machine. Basically, it was, the idea was hmm. to make like the underground version of a submarine. But <laughs> instead of instead of like a conventional tunnel boring machine, which like slowly cuts away the the rock and dirt this had a red hot nuclear reactor in its nose so it just melted everything in its path uh, <laughs> this seems like a bad idea there's actually yeah. a documentary about that they, they took a little bit of liberties with it but it's called tremors <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah yeah uh so the plan according to the russian tabloid paper at least was uh, to put one in a nuclear submarine and then drop it off on the ocean floor near the California coast. And then it would burrow down to the San Andreas Fault, uh, leave a couple big nuclear bombs there, uh, which could be triggered remotely and cause an earthquake. So 
supposedly a prototype was built and tested in the Ural Mountains, uh, where apparently it was able to uh, go as fast as four to eight miles an hour through solid rock. But unfortunately, it exploded. Huh? Ooh, here's. I'm sorry. I was about to say that ain't nothing. But then here's the catch. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Unfortunately, it exploded underground, killing all aboard and conveniently destroying every any evidence that it ever actually existed. Wait, so it bored at four to eight miles an hour? I mean, that's the claim. Like, like I said, there's no confirmation that this was actually ever built. There's really no evidence for it. Yeah, if that's true, that would be wild fast, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nice. uh, uh, eat your heart out, Elon Musk. Yeah, he can't <laughs> even build a tunnel cars can drive through at that speed. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Yeah, so that's all the nuclear-powered vehicles I had uh, that I could find. You know, if you're listening to this and you found something else that I missed, um, you know, contact us. I think, what, what's Connor, what's our email? Is it carsandcomrades at gmail.com? I'm pretty sure. Bear with okay. me. <laughs> Open the email. It's, uh, all right, it is carsandcomrades spelled out. So, you know, with, with the and spelled out, comrades at gmail.com. Yeah, and I think that's that's all our social media is pretty similar. There might be a ampersand in some of them. Yeah, but, some uh, of them the ampersand made sense. Some of them it didn't. So take a guess. If you can't find it with one, it's it's going to be the other. Yeah, yeah. Let let us know. So if 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 Bryant missed anything, let us know, and we'll be very interested in like being like cool, good, good job finding that later because. <laughs> <laughs> Just because you found something we, we happen to miss in a world this vast does not mean we're going to cover. This is peak like having your shit together. Okay, yeah, fair, fair point. I was being optimistic and, and hoping that the listeners were sane and normal and had, had, I feel, had well, interesting. So I feel like I've just I've come across enough online leftists, of which I am one. The online left, I mean, we're always nit, we're too nitpicky, so... Let us know if we miss something. We'll we'll take it under advisement, but that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. all we got. Yeah. We'll we'll tell you good job. Hey, that's cool that you found something that we didn't, but that's that. Maybe we'll do an episode revising it, but probably not. Yeah, and if uh if anyone that worked on any of these projects happens to listen, uh you know, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah you know if, if any of you guys are listening you'll call us up we have some questions yeah namely what the fuck <laughs> well i was thinking like where do i get your drugs <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i i don't i never came across any any uh mention of of drugs uh in any of these but uh i have to imagine something was involved dude i feel i feel extremely confident that if we really do the digging like Every one of these projects is going to get connected to MK Ultra. <laughs> yeah, maybe it was just lead poisoning, you know, or just like heavy metal poisoning in general. There's a lot of that going yeah. around in the 20th century. Yeah, but there was also just a lot of MK Ultra. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, it would, I would guess at least tangentially related because I'm sure everyone was on acid when they were coming up with this <laughs> shit. Because I'm pretty sure that was like part of like they they were having departmental like oh now we're gonna take acid and see how everybody reacts to that and then we're gonna (laughs) think we're gonna go go get into a room and come up with new ideas we're gonna see how this LSD works yeah the ideas the ideas they came up with were 
nuclear bombs under a spring-loaded missile. That's gonna <laughs> sh- With people inside. With, With people, people inside. inside. <laughs> so, you know, I think this might be an anti-drug message, honestly. Like, don't do drugs, kids. You'll come up with dumb shit. I, I, I imagined when I was researching this that, like, all the people that, that were doing this were just, like, I don't know, very straight, buttoned-downed, uh, like, <laughs> nerds, basically. Maybe some of them had, like, PTSD from World War II or just, like, living under the threat of nuclear destruction. And they're like, well, you know, we got to get those commies before they get us. You know, that was kind of the attitude, I feel. And, and you know, the ends justify the means, basically. Yeah, yeah. that seems I like I am that. willing to kill everyone I know to protect them from communism. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> that is um the yeah that is the United States from 1945 to um co- yeah to present just, until <laughs> end of the empire yeah to be TBD Cold War wasn't that fun are you guys ready for uh, Cold War two uh, China Boogaloo <laughs> yeah th- that's interesting there's nothing that I could find about China doing any of these things like maybe they're the same ones I don't know. Yeah, maybe, but uh, you know, things are things are heating up now, so we'll see. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe we'll get back into nuclear vehicles now that <laughs> now that the US and China are locked in a cold war. I mean, it 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 seems fitting. In thirty years we'll be doing a podcast about the time America tried to bore through the core of the <laughs> earth to infiltrate China. Yes, literally digging a hole in China. Yeah. <laughs> Hold on, hold on. But it's probably financed by China. <laughs> uh, They're like <laughs> boring through the earth to invade China with a machine that we had China make for yeah. us. Yeah, no, and, then, and then someone's going to complain. Someone will complain. They stole our technology. You're like, well, it, I mean, <laughs> they made it. Like, it's kind of theirs, too. You see how that works, right? <laughs> They stole this design that we sent them. <laughs> oh man, that reminds me. We might have to do an episode on on hoverboards, like the little Chinese electric things that everyone was getting for Christmas, and they would catch and catch and fire. Like that might be what that was a thing. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, know it was, anything about this. It was a couple of years ago. It was like it was like a it was like a Segway without the little T bar handle, and they were. I don't know. You could buy them for like a hundred bucks. Uh, oh, I know the hoverboards. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that they just caught fire. Yeah, no, like th- they would like you know catch on fire underneath people's Christmas trees and stuff. Oh, that's, um, that's this sounds like the worst version of Ghost Rider. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like I I remember reading something about this. I'll have to look into this some more. But like they were they were sort of like designed by a committee of like different open source uh, hackers in China. And they all kind of like made this like open source design that a bunch of factories built, uh, and some of them would catch fire. Yeah, I don't know. That's about all I know. I, about I get it. it. Sometimes you just gotta catch fire. Yeah. <laughs> well, I no. I, all right, I gotta roll out of here, right. guys. Well, good talking to you, Brandon. Um, Y'all too. How, everyone have have good week. Talk to you later. Well, anything else uh, before I hit stop recording? I'm going to take that as a no. Okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Well, goodbye to anyone that's still listening to this. Yeah, bye, listeners.
Uh, do we Goodbye. should we do like outros? Is that a thing that we should do or fuck or- it? Like we just like trail off into our own conversation. <laughs> oh, are you still listening? <laughs> what are you still doing here, weirdo? Get out. Yeah, time to this go. Is between like, us we now. Could, <laughs> yeah, we could break the fourth wall. That could be our thing. <laughs> I feel like this is how our conversations devolve anyway, so it yeah. makes sense. We gon' make you fight fire with fire, bitch. We make you fight fire with water, bitch. We gon' fight racism, not racism, but we gon' fight the solidarity. We said we're not gon' fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we gon' fight the socialism. Amazingly, or not so amazingly, Cuba's crime rate is one of the lowest in the entire hemispheres. Oddly enough, it seems that when people have their basic human needs met, they're less likely to commit crimes. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're gonna see some serious shit. The free market mythology, it argues that the most ruthless, selfish, opportunistic, greedy, calculating plunderers, applying the most heartless measures in cold-blooded pursuit of corporate interest and wealth accumulation, will produce the best results for all of us through something called the invisible hand. (laughs) What are you smiling about? Dude, I almost had you.